I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. So hi, everybody. We're very excited because we're here today with Dan McQuillan, who's a lecturer in creative and social computing at Goldsmiths University of London. Um, And today we're going to be talking about his new book, Resisting AI, an anti-fascist approach to artificial intelligence. Um, So thanks so much for being with us here today. Yeah, it's great to be here. So maybe we could just start a little bit about you and your background. Um, How did you get into tech and AI work and uh, maybe a bit about why you decided to write the book? Yeah, so I have a I have a quite a mixed background. I did a PhD in experimental particle physics, which involved a certain amount of computing. Uh, but after that, I I, I, well, I changed direction completely. I worked with people with learning disabilities, people with mental health problems, and uh, I worked uh, with asylum seekers and refugees. But but somewhere in the middle of that process, um, there was a lot of pressure, for example, from funders to have you know sort of numbers to justify the funding, and you know. Somebody bought a database and everyone was sitting around looking at the manual. This was the days when things were installed off a disk, you know, and they were saying, like, uh, nobody knows how to use this thing. We need to record the, the numbers or whatever. And that's how I got, you know, I thought, oh, well, I know a bit of programming. So, and I ended up then sort of getting involved at that overlap between community projects and technology. And then through various routes, I worked for, also, I worked for the NHS. I worked for Amazon, uh, for um, Amnesty, not for Amazon, for Amnesty International. I did digital human rights work. So yeah, uh, and then I kind of stumbled back, I guess, stumbled back into to academia. And uh, what did I write? The, I wrote the book because obviously uh, I'm in a computing department, uh, and on the other hand, you know, I've got a kind of a pretty strong interest in social and political issues, and I was sort of observing the growth, the, the growth of the current wave of AI, if you like. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really, I, and I started writing different things and uh, about about different aspects of it. Um, but I think it was it was really the it was the kind of peak ethics conversation that mm-hmm. really sort of drove me to to actually you know write something in, in a more serious vein because because it was absolutely uh, it was kind of appalling how AI was being discussed in terms of ethics and not in terms of politics. Um, but but also at the same time, the politics of the current moment are so uh, uh, so urgent, so crisis ridden, and uh, so concerning. You know that those two things sort of came together for me. That's that's was the kind of genesis of the book: the need to establish AI as a fundamentally political technology, but also the need to address a political technology in the time of the kinds of politics that we've got. So, so you, you've subtitled it an anti-fascist approach to artificial intelligence. So I wonder, maybe we could start the uh, discussion a little bit around how you define AI and artificial intelligence. Um, and one of the things I was really struck by in, in the book, as you describe it, is in a way almost how bad AI is at, at what it's purported purported to have, to said to do, you know, Um yeah. And, and how humans are always augmenting, you know, every step of the process. Um, so, so do you think that AI can ever really work? Is it always mediated by human labor? Or are we just de- deploying it in in systems or in circumstances where it can never live up to the claims of its creators, but it but it can be useful in, in other ways? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think, like you say, it's it's kind of important to. I don't think you can exactly pin down what AI is because it's a very uh, you know, it's an ever-changing uh, field in a way. But uh, I, I would say that AI is, is is never separate. You know, it is a specific technology. And, and one of my disclaimers is that, you know, a part of me is a bit nerdy. You know, I actually quite like computers and, you know, <laughs> I like messing around with them. 
uh, you know, so so I can appreciate, I really appreciate, you know, sort of like interesting bits of computing, but I also believe that they can't be really treated as if technology emerges somewhere, somewhere over there and then has to be sort of coaxed into society. I mean, you know, in technology, emerges is co-produced by the society that's that it emerges and never really separate from it. you know i would really really challenge the idea that you could ever separate ai from any uh, from institutions and social structures and cultural frameworks and political ideologies i mean it, it's it's intimately connected with those things so i try to I, I tend to use the term apparatus partly because uh actually in the book uh, one of the ways I try to explain, in a way, the significance of AI, because I do think AI is significant, is through the ideas of Karen Barrett. You know, we, we could sort of, we could, we could talk about it. Um, but it's that particular use of the term apparatus. So it's something that um, actually is not simply, let's say, um, measuring reality in some way, but is productive of it. But the apparatus I'm talking about is, it is those concrete computations. These are very specific. Right? AI, as we know it, is a very specific family of technologies. They have their own characteristics, and I think those are really important, but you can't separate them. And I think uh, if the book has a kind of um, subliminal message, really, it's the centrality, not of AI, but of the idea of techno-politics, you know, that we must have a politics, not of technology, but to see technology as political and and uh, and vice versa, you know, to see politics as technological. Um, so... So on to this particular technology and your question about whether it works and you know, is it always going to require sort of uh, invisibilized and sort of precaritized labor to keep keep it going, you know, or is it just being used wrong? Uh, my answer would definitely be A, you know, that is it will always require that kind of labor, but it's not, you know, um, it's kind of, you know, it is really stark actually how uh, even with the most vaunted methods, you know, I mean, I really think somebody needs to do, to do a good takedown of, um, alpha, uh, what, what do they call it? Alpha fold, I think, the deep mind mm. protein folding. Thing, you know, but you, you know, I'm, I think that probably represents one of the sort of um, pinnacles that AI practitioners would say, well, at least, you know, that one, at least that <laughs> one has fulfilled a potential. And I, I, I don't agree. Uh, and certainly with most other examples, as you, you know, you, you and your listeners are clearly familiar with, are just much more starkly kind of rubbish at what they do, <laughs> or, or at least, you know, perhaps operate uh, acceptably within certain parameters, but reality is always going outside of those parameters. And so, you know, there are all sorts of brittlenesses and, and failure modes. <clears throat> but I think maybe we should look at it in a different way and say, well, actually, you, you know, another way to look at it would be what something does is what it's for, mm-hmm. rather than what people say it's for, you know, and, and people saying it's, for solving all these problems i mean that's clearly i mean i i spend a certain amount of time in the book trying to explain why that's um a completely misleading and, and dangerous way of looking at ai but i'd say it's doing its job actually it's doing its job it's doing a job you know i would say if if ai produces more precarious workers if it disempowers workers and people in general which is what it seems to do because in the process of it does need a lot of people around, but they're going to be very marginalized, very disempowered in relation to the people who control the system itself. Actually, I think that's probably what it's for. You know, I think of AI as a profoundly anti-worker technology. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the case study of Australia and the false like benefits claim scandal, because that seems to be a really good example demonstrating, um, you know, your point around like how both it doesn't work, but then how the AI, the implementation of AI obscures the politics um, at work and the political system at work. And so is that, and it, you know, yeah, is, sure. is that a case study that it doesn't work, it's deployed in the wrong way, it's deployed purposely, even though they know it's wrong in order yeah. to, to achieve a political objective? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the, uh, they call it, I think, you know, people around that, uh, that series of events or that, that mechanism that, uh, we can call it an algorithmic mechanism, but it's like a rubbish algorithm. It's the kind of thing you could put in a spreadsheet. It doesn't need. It wasn't deep learning by by a million miles. You know, but it. But it. I think it's a. It's a precursor, you know, of of because it does have those characteristics you were just talking about. It has it manages to camouflage what's really going on? It dresses it up, you know, in a, in an entirely false um, aura of objectivity and science and all of that kind of stuff. Right. But it, it's also useful. It's also useful. It's also. Um, 
a useful example in a, in a couple of different ways, one of which is even quite hopeful, actually. Uh, it's an appalling system which basically just decided to average out people's earnings, you know, over periods of time. And, and therefore, particularly for people in already precarious work who are kind of in and out of the situation of needing welfare support, um, rendered them as having an income at a time when they didn't, and therefore, um, you know, uh, assign, uh, classified them as benefit thieves, essentially, people cheating the benefit system. Now, that's kind of, actually, that kind of stuff is pretty much everywhere at the moment. If there's a good project, which I'm sure you're aware of, called Algorithm Watch, which keeps an eye on different ways that automated decision-making, so-called, is being deployed in, in Europe, particularly. You know, they've got a dozen examples of these kind of systems already. Um, but the, a couple of characteristics of RoboDebt. I mean, one is that the Australian government did, um, you know, created a legal framework in which the decisions of the algorithm were law, you know, and, because they were, uh, the algorithmic system was delegated the authority of whatever they called it, the council minister of state or whatever it was. I mean, it's in, in black and white, but the, the decisions of this algorithm will have the authority of the minister of state. So when the algorithm said, you're in debt, you know, you owe us money, you've stolen money from us, then you did in the eyes of the legal system. And so that was absolutely horrifying, of course. And it created like ridiculous conditions that the only way you could challenge it was if you had seven years worth of full record keeping for everything you've done. Um, and I think it's a good example of, of, of a phrase that I've picked up off others, which is algorithmic cruelty. Mm. You know, it was a really cruel system. It caused a lot of human suffering. It did so in the full awareness, as it turns out, you know, of the people who implemented it, um, who have never apologised, by the way, even though the relevant ombudsman, you know, in us in, in in Australia eventually did declare the system as a as basically legal what it was doing. Um, nobody ever apologised to it, and of course, the people who are harmed by it, many of them are still struggling to get some kind of recompense, and there's no real recompense for, you know, the kind of mental health problems and you know, family divisions and all of this kind of thing that were the inevitable collateral damage. So all in all, a pretty appalling example, you know, with essentially a toy algorithm of what can come from um, enabling what was actually, the, you know, the, the sort of typical neoliberal right-wing polit politics being um, channeled through this apparently uh, infrastructural technical mechanism. So that's definitely a warning. The positive bit comes from the fact that what brought it to a halt was uh, the community. You know, was it was a massively crowdsourced set of activities of you know some people who knew about sort of accounting. You know, some people who knew about software. You know, um, dissident sort of tech people saying, well, "Hang on a second, I've you know I've looked into this, or I've got an idea what this algorithm is actually doing, so it's doing," and just community campaigning and people and people supporting each other and mutual aid. I mean, all of the themes that I also tried to bring out later in the book. You know, it's it's it was a, a incredibly strong and brave community campaign that eventually s stopped. It wasn't, it, nobody would have stopped it. It would have just carried on doing its thing. And it was, the, it was people who stopped it. But one of the other things um, that, that, you know, that, that you break up on the book as well, when, when we talk about AI, most of the time the fear mongering is around, or like the, the fear discourse is around artificial general intelligence. You know, this idea that like AI is going to become more sentient than humans, we're going to get these like really intelligent robots who will, you know, decide that humanity shouldn't, should live anymore. Or in some way they're intelligent, you know, the intelligence and sentience of the AI is, is going, um, is the, the problem that we should be worried about rather than these kind of more mundane automated bureaucratic practices. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously in the book, you talk about how this is related to notions like IQ, white supremacy and eugenics. Um, so I wonder, one, I guess, how do you think about that discourse around artificial general intelligence? Do you think that's legitimate at all? Or is this kind of a very uh, nefarious way that the people who are in charge of these systems are trying to distract us? Or, or is there a genuine thing uh, to be worried about there? Um, and and then what what do you think is is the real problem around AI? Is it the the, the deployment of it within automated bureaucracies or systems? Yeah, I mean, I don't spend any time thinking about the dangers of AGI actually happening. You know, and personally, I don't believe it will. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I'm sort of open to computation 
and science in general making advances that I don't expect. Um, but abs absolutely nothing I've ever read, and you know, I tried to keep up, <laughs> and nothing I've seen suggests that anybody who's talking about this has actually got much of an idea what it is to be human, <laughs> let, let, let alone you know, have an idea how to translate that into a computational form. You know? So, uh, and it, it is interesting, it, you know, if not surprising, because the, this dialogue around, I think it's, I think it's morphing into this conversation about alignment or something like that value, you know, this idea that when this incredible superior intelligence does come along, we have to put lots of effort into making sure that it's aligned with human values or something that doesn't eliminate us by producing lots of paper clips. Um, I mean, it's it's rubbish, but it's it's dangerous. It's dangerous rubbish, like a lot of other dangerous rubbish. Um, I mean, it is being used as a nice distracting uh, narrative by the industry, but I think more broadly for privilege, essentially. The arguments that are most concerned about those things, like it's kind of weirdly inverted. Like what most of the people, I unfortunately think, are propagating this idea that you know, something may come along and have privileges over us, tend to be the people who already have quite a lot of privileges. And in a weird, it's a kind of weirdly Freudian or a psycho psychodynamic sort of thing. And what they're most afraid of is losing their own privilege. So at some level, usually not a pr pretty much not a consciousness, conscious one, if, if any of the leading AI figures are to go by, but you know, like, at some level, there's a general consciousness of privilege under threat. And in a way, this is again, you know, I'm, I'm obviously in an optimistic mood this evening, call me a good, on a good day, right? That I think that's actually a reflection of the fact that there is a threat. You know, there are many dynamics uh, at this time that are genuinely challenging embedded privileges of all sorts of kinds, kind, you know, whether it's around gender, rigid gender roles, or, you know, extractive petroleum industries, when, it, when all of these things are under you know strong critique and and active actively being challenged and you know we're entering into a territory as well where the the existing status quo which has maintained these privileges actually i mean even the enlightenment you know didn't really address this you know the questions of oops the questions of um uh or, you know sort of essentially white male patriarchal racial colonial privilege. It didn't, it didn't. In fact, it embedded. So that's been going for a long time and has been fairly stable. I mean, periods like 1968 were a real shock to the system, but you know, they 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 adapted. Neoliberalism was a good counter move, if you see what I mean. And I think this is a time when when these these stabilities of privilege are threatened again, just because the wheels are coming off. You know, the whole <laughs> You know the system as a whole is clearly falling apart and has no real answers you know and uh, it's hardly surprising that people who identify with um large large proportions of the status quo you know get get a bit sort of concerned and this is definitely a challenge uh, 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 sorry this area is one way in which particular privileged people that maybe we're more concerned with are the ones who are building ai systems who are building actual AI systems right now, or funding AI systems right now, or, or building the field of AI, simultaneously feel sort of threatened. And that's pretty obvious around a lot of the conversations, uh, you know, in that kind of space. And in the book, I tried to talk about how they're all um, in some way perhaps nested, you know, so you've got these kind of essentially bullshit conversations about rationalism and, um, what people who are observers of these kind of murky areas call the intellectual dark web, you know, these kind of idiots. Uh, and they are more like that phrase, they're, they're kind of useful idiots, you know, they're, they're serving a distractive purpose. And within those, you've got much more ideological elements, like that period of, of um, so-called neo-reaction, Nick Lamb ideology, and people who are actually committed to a transformative ideology that dispenses with democracy and that kind of thing. And then, these form a kind of, when I was thinking about earlier, I thought, oh, yeah, this is quite a nice analogy. It's kind of gradient descent. You know, you go through, uh, you know, from the fringes is just this kind of a typical male privilege, white male privilege. You move further inwards, it starts to take more ideological forms. 
accelerationism. And at the core of that is extreme right fascism. One of the things I thought was really interesting in, in the book as well, you talk about um, uh, the way, you know, there are layers to these AI systems. So one of the things, again, is true, but is also a form of distraction is, is the sort of like people talking about the junk data. And so the way like biased data collections can affect AI. So that's one layer of how AI um, can, can quote unquote go wrong. Um, and, and one of the phrases I really love from the book is that you say, you know, AI cannot make data meaningful. It can't tell you why it's meaningful, even if, if sort of like it, it tricks you or, or seems really uh, intelligent by the way it's predicting patterns. Um, in particular, I remember it was a couple of months ago, it might've been a few years ago at this point, there was a some folks at Stanford put an algorithm that were supposed to be able to predict whether someone was queer, but then they use like binary gender categories. And you think that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did use it as a bit of a serial offender. He did that same kind of trick a few times with different things. Yeah. Yeah. So you just think, you know, there's so many layers of like, one, this will obviously be used for harm. Two, this is obviously mm -hmm. doesn't work. And three, like, even the parameters that you used are so embedded in these, like, why, you know, European centric colonial ideas of binary gender. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like, you know, how, uh, the, the, the data collection process and what you mean by uh, why AI can't tell us, the, you know, why things are meaningful. Um, and then in particular, I was I was thinking, uh, you know, about the examples you gave in terms of how then when the algorithm, it appears to impose meeting because people start changing their behavior around the algorithm. So I loved the example about the finance training algorithm where it wasn't really predicting anything about how people behave, but then people started behaving to trick the algorithm. So so, so th this, these kind of um, examples. I, I don't know. Well, certainly my objection to the idea that AI could encounter any kind of meaning is because I associate the meanings that we share, you know, with, with our sort of shared experience, our shared embedded and uh, most importantly interdependent, uh, you know, experience of this uh, ongoing flux of, of life. And to me, there doesn't seem to be any connection between that and what AI models are doing. Um, so it's hardly, you know, that. And I think that's really, I saw an example yesterday, quite a nice one, where uh, somebody had applied a, a, it's a, it's a German video artist called, I don't really know how to pronounce her name properly, called Hito Steyer. But anyway, she was applying some of these automated algorithms to show exactly this point. She took one of these caption algorithms and, and showed it the picture of the Nord Stream pipeline. So the, the, the sort of ring of bubbles, if you like, that came up from the bottom of the sea. And I got it somewhere here, but it basically said, it describes it as um, the sea is blue, the sea is green, the, uh, the uh, what is it, the, you know, the, the surf is round or something like this. So, you know, it's, it's describing accurately what it can see and it's missing the sort of uniqueness. You know? And I mean, of course, there are unique events. That's a unique event. The examples I quote in the book of visual miscaptioning or whatever there about sort of unique historical events that only somebody with a you know, a political and historical awareness can understand. But I think actually, maybe it reflects a deeper sort of philosophical point that actually, you know, our experience is composed of a series of unique moments, you know, and uh, if you like, AI is doing, trying to do exactly the opposite. It's trying to render all of those things commensurable and um, because it's data processing only works that way, you know. And, and in fact, funny you should mention the finance thing. It renders that stuff commensurable i think exactly because it needs to engage in a form of trading you know the back propagation algorithm to me is it's it's, it's a form of trading it's trading these different bits of data off against each other in order to optimize to its own goals and i think that's that in itself is you know as i, I try to to write about this a bit in the book you know that the this sort of speculative trading the social logic of derivatives as, as somebody else named it much more uh, pithily you know, is is what is one of the dynamics that AI brings into everyday life, and it brings that kind of, um, vul you know, that that kind of flash vulnerability of the markets into our everyday experience by employing a 
sort of speculative futures market of everything, you know, in, in, in its internal algorithms, but certainly nothing to do with meaning. Um, but the, the, the other point that I, I'd just like to res respond to, like from what you're saying about, about how it kind of doesn't matter. Again, it's like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it doesn't understand or that understanding is not even a term that applies to these systems. It doesn't matter. I think or it doesn't matter to me anyway because I think it, it's uh, its impact is in a different comes in a different form. Its impact doesn't come from its ability to uh, understand the nuance of human experience. Its power comes from being able to reshape human experience uh, along its own reductive, abstracting lines. You know, and through the financial, the introduction of the. You know the, the big bang introduction of financial systems in the uh, in the stock market is it was an example of that and that was well studied um but, you know uh and a great book was written about it but like a more contemporary sort of more mundane example i think which i also use in the book but it, it kind of does the job for me would be uh also because it's related to amazon is the ai camera system that amazon introduced on the vans where it's allegedly there to monitor you know, uh, the van safety for everybody's well-being, you know, so that packages don't get stolen, and, and also that drivers don't drive dangerously. I mean, why would they drive dangerously when they're in a precarious job who's, where the very first survival depends on how many deliveries they can make an hour? I mean, why on earth would they drive dangerously? But anyway, you know, it it's there supposedly for everyone's safety. But of course, you know, it's an AI system, so it misinterprets reality. And many drivers reported when this was introduced that if they're going along a freeway, whatever it is, you know, and uh, somebody cuts them up, as we say here, you know, shot pulls out in front of them. The AI system was interpreting them as driving too close to the driver in front. You know, now the more interesting bit is that the sanctions mechanism is all automated as well. You know, the, 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 the you know, the, obviously the system that interfaces between these subcontracted driving companies and Amazon itself is a bit like an API. You know, it sucks in data from the contractor that gets processed I mean, everything is automated so it can be optimized and you know these drivers are regarded as a, a bad driver you know lost their bone automatically lost their bonus that maybe put the firm at threat you know and so on and so forth lots of knock-on effects but the the, the the point of recounting that example is kind of unsurprising as it is is really just to say actually that doesn't matter you know the point is if the algorithm behind the camera system decided they were a bad driver in effect they were a bad driver. I mean, everything that happened to them is what happens to a bad driver. They were sanctioned. You know, they maybe lost their job. So they were a bad driver. It doesn't matter how an external, less involved human might have assessed the situation, you know, in a, in a, where there was the chance for discourse or, or, or appeal in some way. You know, that doesn't matter. What matters in this England? I feel that all of these systems actually if we step back from the if I can say the word, the glamour of AI, but, you know, the sort of excitement around this idea that there's somehow a piece of the future has emerged in our everyday life. What does it mean, the androids? You know, um, if we can step back from that and just um, perhaps, you know, AI is focusing our, our, uh, our attention on actually a whole number of misconceptions, one of which is around data. You know, the idea that data is reflecting something it's not reflecting something it's doing something mm. as soon as that data is um you know as soon as that the data is being collected in that way is understood in those terms it's itself producing an aspect of reality not reflecting it or, or that is the point not reflecting it or misreflecting that's not what it's doing it's doing something much more active it's actively modifying so that's why I also, at some point, I think, in the book, claim that I take AI really, really seriously. You know, I take it more seriously than some of its practitioners because they may say that AI is asymptotically tending towards a system that models reality very accurately. I think it models reality very poorly, but I do say it modifies reality, you know, very dynamically. And that's another reason why I think we should resist it. Yeah, it's such a good point. I think that it 
it doesn't really understand, but it then by by imposing it and acting as if it understands it's creating meaning, can't understand. Um, I think that's such a good point. Just on the Nord Stream photos, I don't know if you, I don't know if it's real, but there've been, you know, those Dolly, the AI um, oh, yeah. image prompt circulating and somebody put uh, salmon in a river and it's a fillet of salmon in a river. <laughs> Again, demonstrating yeah. the point that the, the AI doesn't really understand contextually meaning what what it all means and it's creating this just from prompts i i mean i kind of love some of that stuff i mean i do you know I, I follow a few feeds that that sort of churn out the most interesting stable diffusion pictures or whatever it is and and it, i mean I, it's kind of challenging in a way because that's that's good that's some good shit in there I mean, that's really <laughs> quite, quite fun you know like i really like that um and, you, and then you say, oh, well, you know, the art, still the human creativity coming up with the prompts and whatever. But, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's it's definitely interesting. But I think it's also kind of revealing at some other level as well. It's like what I would take out of those in terms of I'm not uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't sort of pontificate about creativity or any of that kind of stuff, because any more that I'd really pontificate about intelligence, because I have no ability to define those things at all. But I would say it's kind of interesting that if you see a lot of them, you know, and you sort of immerse yourself in those kind of pictures, um, there's some great stuff in there, but it's really just an endless swirl of reassembly, you know? Mm -hmm. It can only, and of course, this is part of the problem because it's partly driven by loads of stolen images. Yeah. You know, that's part of the problem, right? But it's not just that. It's also that it's it's just dynamically recycling and rearranging it in a vast number of possible ways that which was already there and that's why i condemn these systems in the end because they will never no matter how much they refined or um, improved in terms of their technical operation they they can never suggest something truly different and something truly different is a pretty good description for what we are doing yeah it's true i feel like that's the appeal of the the AI images is because you're like, that does kind of look like that and that mm. like the face mash almost. Yeah, um, it's, it's exactly. It's like a it's like a mega mash. It's like yeah, a but hyper mash. really new. <laughs> yeah. And and the same thing applies to every AI system, which means the same thing applies to, you know, this idea of which I'm very disturbedly reading, wading my way painfully through various EU policy frameworks on AI mm. and uh, something I would really advocate that nobody does particularly <laughs> but one of the things that comes out from that is a really firm commitment from the European Union to well to several very bad ideas one of which is e-governance you know they're still committed to this idea and it's taken on a new life with AI that they kind of envisage an optimized European Union you know uh, with European values but that essentially, or rather, an AI which somehow magically has European values and incredibly can be trusted, you know, which is trustable AI, but it's basically going to run things and it's going to run things so that essentially so that the EU as a power block can carry on competing with the US as a power block and China as a power block. I and mean, that seems to be really the central concern of these policymakers in the end. But what it, what it does mean is that because I think society is clearly under transformations, transformations of various kinds. And the kinds of transformations that are going to be shaped by AI are not transformations. That's the point. They're just, as you say, they're just going to be a mashups. Mm. You know, we're going to, I mean, look at, I mean, it'd be like Italy at the moment, right? We're going to get a mashup of, you know, Mussolini and Instagram. I mean, that's <laughs> like a really bad idea. Yeah, <laughs> that's the age of mashups. Um, so, so one of the, um, like, solutions policy responses to this these problems of algorithms that's been talked about is um ai explainability like mm -hmm. i trust so like you know a lot of the times especially i think like in financial or with credit scores the people who are in charge of this can't explain how the algorithm got to this out point because they just don't know what it's doing um and so you have some really interesting ex examples in the book as well around um like uh, uh, I think it was some medical cases in which uh, because people had, you know, were trying to explain these AIs, they were able to show in um, in cases that the AI was um, either uh, 
you know, embedded in racial biases. So not mm. referring black or non-white patients, black or brown patients as, as often as, as white patients, because that bias was reflected in the data um, to, you know, uh, uh, miscategorizing people as higher or lower risk um, because they, they weren't able to do this. And, and that the, these, you know, these were only caught because people were trying to explain AI. Um, so, so I wonder, cause you know, whenever I hear AI explainability, I often think like, oh, this is another buzzword, a bit like, you know, AI ethics or AI trust. Um, but then reading the book, I wonder like, do you think explainability, you know, is, is it, is it a useful kind of resistance strategy to, to AI? Um, oh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Hmm. I mean, just on the example you were talking about, I think even they weren't actually deliberately trying to explain it. I mean, there are all those explainability models, um, which, you know, I know they've advanced a lot. I, I, I engaged with them when, when it was around the era of, of um, line, locally interpretable model explanations. And, um, you know, you, you, you kind of got the idea where they were faced with very complex transformations and they just tried to sort of zoom in on a particular sort of um inflection point and then sort of basically in effect draw a little straight line that approximated to the complex curve at that point so they could explain it and uh you know clearly it's basically a cheat uh, uh, and that's probably what explainability is really i mean if you could genuinely explain these things there wouldn't be much point to having deep learning because we could just fucking explain it you know, we wouldn't need the algorithms, right? So it's kind of a bit, you know, it's a bit <laughs> misleading, you know. But I think your point is actually much more on the nail. It's like we could argue back and forth about how much each of these fudges might reveal about the genuine workings of the deep learning algorithm or the reinforcement layer, whatever it is. We, you know, that that would be kind of interesting for nerdy types like like us in a way. Um, but it would be missing the point. And the point is your question in your question about does this constitute um some strategy of resistance or challenge or um you know uh, empowers us in some way and and i don't think it does actually i really don't think it does i don't think explanation is or any of its sort of cousins like transparency mm. you know um or even actually which we could you know which we might want to contest a bit more even accountability I don't think any of these things are actually very effective um, political strategies. Let's say, you know, I can explain lots of things. You know, I can, exp I could, well, I could probably have a pretty decent hash of explaining, you know, why there's a feminist uprising in Iran right now. You know, and I'd probably get some of the essentials right. I wouldn't, wouldn't put me in a position of doing anything about it. You know, it's, it's. I don't think for me the question right now about AI is not. Can I explain AI? Or can anybody else explain what AI? I can see what AI is doing. You know, that actually, there's plenty of evidence. Just to mm -hmm. uh, rant again about the EU strategy, I was reading the, you know, the sort of final report of their high-level expert group, and it's trying to be each, you know, they're addressing 150 different points here. Each point, they say, they're trying to be like, well, you know, one because they're really just trying to start from the assumption that technology is somehow intrinsically neutral and there's some good ways to use it and there's some bad ways to use it so every point is captured it's like well you know, on the one hand the ai can you know this is going to bring some benefits to radiology and cancer treatment on the other hand you have to be careful not to sort of kill any black people while we're doing it you know it's like okay this, all of those examples the goods that come from them are entirely speculative the harms are already in the evidence is already in you know there's many many practical examples real life examples where these things are going wrong and hurting people. So for me, the question isn't to explain any of that. The question is, how do we do something about it? You know, and uh, an explanation doesn't do it for me. And accountability, similarly, really, I think it's uh, it's a kind of, uh, I mean, I, I'm probably stepping on the one. That, I don't want to dismiss people who are working for algorithmic accountability because I'm not against the idea of um, pushing in many different directions. But from my point, accountability is also missing the point because it still has too many embedded assumptions that we're working with something that can be fixed. Mm. Or more importantly, we're working with something that's embedded within a social order that can be fixed, that we have what people love to call a rules-based order that may get things wrong, but has mechanisms of correctability 
and that's you know why we defend it and we're happy to live in a liberal democracy and i that's just not a picture i recognize you know i think the harms caused by ai are entirely coherent with the cruelties and harms that are caused by the system that we have and i don't really see that any explanations or so-called accountability mechanism i mean this is something i encountered a lot when i was working in human rights i mean i left uh the human rights uh, uh field you know basically in, in, in disgust really uh th th didn't have any real impact because it was it was starting from the assumption that there was uh basically okay system there and we just needed to remind people not to go too far at the edges and that's not what i see so it's not what I, not what i expect from ai which is why i'm saying i'm not really interested in uh, reforming this technology i don't think it's reformable i think it should be at the moment um, basically stopped it's a really good uh segue into the next question which is kind of about accountability but you know i really liked you integrate a discussion of Hannah Arendt and, and Weber into, mm. into the book, which I really like in a past life. I also studied yes. a bit about <laughs> transitional justice and accountability. So Arendt and Weber were always there. Um, but I was, I was kind of struck and I remember, you know, I reread Weber when I started the PhD and I was struck by like how similar um, the process, like the, these problems around bureaucracies, the mindless bureaucracy and, taking decisions but no one is really accountable for these decisions and no one seems to be making the choice but they're implementing the choice which is exactly what Faber and Arendt and Eichmann and Jerusalem is talking about in terms of like can you know can can we um how do these state like bureaucracies machines go forth and do things that you know it seems pretty obvious everyone at every level should stop but and yet and yet keeps going um so then I wonder then in in terms of talking about um AI, I mean, there's the, there's like the automatic bureaucratic or, or you know, almost technopolitics, the, the obscuring of who takes decisions and then that relates to the accountability. So who can be said to take, take responsibility or accountability? And as you brought up, does that even matter? Um, but then, but then thinking about it in a sort of resistance framework, then it's interesting in terms of like, where, if, if nobody's taking this decision, where can you stop it? Who do you resist at what level? Um, so, so I wonder then, to, just to bring it back, do you think, mm -hmm. do you think the bureaucratization of AI, deploying AI, is something radically different than the problem of bureaucracy that that we've had in the past that these thinkers are talking about? Um, like, is does it add a new element um, that that's not there? And then, um, is there a difference in terms of say, like automated bureaucracy, it, which which might be you know something we could talk about akin to say, you know, what Hannah Arendt was talking about, um, or, or or things like, say, autonomous weapons or autonomous robots, which again, we, you know, th that seems to have a sort of sentience autonomousness that's distinct from bureaucracy in some way. Um, so sorry, it's a big question, but that that was mm. kind of my 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 thoughts reading that that section. We're definitely thinking along similar lines, or at least we're reacting, you know, reacting along similar lines. You know, you described basically exactly the reaction I had. Um, that you know it's it's incredibly uh, vivid how you can which i try to do you know in the book i just say look well, look here's bureaucracy and it's characteristics and here's ai and it's characteristics look they're exactly the same and um i'm concerned about that for the same reasons you know that, that you are because actually that critique of bureaucracy which i think is a very valid critique of bureaucracy you know is um maybe this wasn't weber's intention but i think fully at full intention but I think it does serve as a very good um, warning, really, of what this kind of what this kind of social machine can do, and we know has done and continues to do all day, every day. You know, the Department of Work and Pensions, you know, is is conducting cruelty, bureaucratic cruelty every day, um, and it's full of ordinary people. You know, I have a great faith in ordinary people. That's my, you know, one of my sort of starting points. You know, I don't. I think very few people are evil. You know, let's let's kind of touch on themes of Arendt as well. But it's like uh, I, there are some bad people around, but I think um, sort of really uh, malevolent, vicious, uh, irrede irredeemably vicious people are are a minority. Let's say you know, and most people uh, are not and don't really have uh, 
a great urge to, you know, harm their neighbours or um, cause lots of people to die unnecessarily. And yet that is the net result of our collective activity because of the way we're organising it and under the rubrics which with which we organise it. Right? So, you know, we, we know that that kind of combined critique that you were talking about of, of what does bureaucracy do and what can automatised thinking lead to that, you know, the sort of Eichmann example, both exactly sort of templates that leapt out at me when I was trying to read the possible consequences of applying AI systems at scale. And I felt that, that at least saying that, at least saying, well, you know, this this isn't some starship technology from the future. If you want to understand AI, it's bureaucracy on steroids. You know, that's what that's what mm-hmm. it is. Um, but in terms of uh, you know what to do about that, you know, and and how um, since that's you know the sort of bureaucratic model has definitely undergone a lot of modifications. You know, it, the the really irritating adaptability of sort of the capital capitalist system as a whole, you know, has adopted and adapted uh, a sort of flexible network aspect as well as the old sort of rigid verticals, although they're both they're still there, but they, they just kind of coexist now. So it's not that we're talking about simple pyramid hierarchies. Those are still there, and then there's sort of fluid network dynamics of power and so on and so forth. But essentially, you know, these are these are all, you know, whether they're corporate or private sector, you know, they're forms of uh, scaling collective human activity of ordering society you know to be in some sense uh predictable and containable uh that that share characteristics with those things we're talking about that those core sort of functions haven't changed and their impacts haven't really changed which is why we need to be so alarmed since bureaucracy did play a very central role in fascism the first time um so, so I, 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 you know, you were saying is AI really? You know, I think you were asking in some ways: is AI, AI doing anything different at all? Is it really anything new, or is it just we just say, oh, it's, and I, I, I am doing that. So I say it's just bureaucracy in, in another way. But it's not. It's perhaps more that both bureaucracy and AI represent a certain cluster of uh, approaches to uh, social order. And th- those kind of core elements are potentially quite fluid. They can emerge in different ways. And in certain periods, they've emerged in things that we call bureaucracies. Now they're also emerging through these technical mechanisms. Um, and this is what makes it important to, I think, to, to try and have a kind of sensibility or a kind of sense mechanism for when old patterns emerge in very new forms because this is what i'm trying to get the optimistic bit to understand they will have a history they will have a kind of genealogy as foucault said they 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 have a heritage in the same way that the core mathematics of machine learning has its heritage in the you know the mathematics developed by people like galton and pearson which were essentially for eugenics you know it has that heritage doesn't it's not deterministic but they have that heritage and the optimistic bit, I would say, comes from the fact that I'm not saying there's one single struggle going on here, but there are ongoing historical struggles in many forms. So let's say, let's say, uh, decolonialism, anti-colonialism. And this is a long struggle, a long history, and that's a good thing because at many points in that history, people have found ways to push back. We cannot, you know, when we're thinking about how to. Um, address the harms of AI and pose it in a much more constructive way and think about what world do we want to live in? What kind of world do we want to live in? What aspects of the world do we want to improve? What are the, or what are the aspects of the world which we'd like to build on? Um, rather than so many things that we can point at that are like threatening human existence. Um, you know, uh, And we can also draw from history. We have our own genealogy we have our own history of resistances and you know i think there are at the same time that 
there are in some ways centuries of bureaucratic order, you know, the different formats of you know, the sort of uh, different empires. Uh, there are centuries of resistance. There are centuries of people finding and making lives in some way outside of those systems, whether it's kind of actually external or internally separate from them. There are, in some cases, successful, you know, um, replacements of those systems with things that are more amenable to general human well-being. So, I, and I know I, I, I do even sound to myself here, like I've gone off into some distant uh, space of reasoning, but I think these are very concrete things. I think when we're faced with, for example, weaponized algorithmic bureaucracy, we can look at what people have done in their own time in history to say, um, these systems are not serving our ends. Uh, how can we organize differently? How can we, uh, which for example, trade unions are a sort of product of that historically, but how can we uh, assert some of the things that we need? So that's really the question for me is not like, um, how do we make AI less bureaucratic? Because that's like asking the tongue to taste itself, you know? It's, <laughs> it's how, do we, how do we do something different? Yeah, I, I think that, that, that the point about the history is, is so um, interesting to me because one of the things I noted in the book and, you know, is, is obviously very clear is that, you know, AI sort of re-legitimizes these old, these old ideologies. So like there's, you know, it's amazing how quickly AI became just eugenics in a new coat sort of um, phrenology, all these, all these ideas and, and these bases, which we thought we had, you know, proven as defunct or, or amoral or just wrong um, is, is coming back. Um, and, and, you know, there's old names, there's eugenics and the new names, uh, genetic determinism. Um, so, so I wonder then thinking in terms of resistance, what, you know, you, you've called the book an anti-fascist approach to mm -hmm. AI what i guess why did you kind of choose that that framework and that lens to think about it um and then do you think there are types of resistance that that do or don't work so so you talked about um you know we can't redeploy walmart for our, our own ends you know we need to uh, uh uh disassemble in some ways um mm -hmm. the system so uh, does I guess my question is, you know, you've said we can't redeploy this corporation. Does that mean we can use the state um, to to contain these corporations, to contain these AI structures, or uh, in the way that you know, say EU regulation is sort of using you know bureaucracy to tame bureaucracy, or or is that does that fall prey to the kind of same logics, or does it need to be you know grassroots and anarchical? Um, and then secondly, kind of uh, the last big question, you know, you say, would You've said AI would look very different in in a just system. Would you do you think that there would be AI in, in a more just system? Do you think resistance to AI is just no AI, or is this a, there a way we can integrate it and repurpose it? So two big questions. To yeah. Uh, I mean, on the on the point about labeling the book or subtitling an anti-fascist approach to AI. I mean, I also invoke in the book the you know several other frameworks that I think are also incredibly relevant. Uh, I mean, who couldn't say they're relevant? Who could not say that, you know, uh, decolonialism is relevant or, you know, feminism. Actually, actually, I pivot quite a lot of what I say really very much on feminist resistances of one kind or another, sort of both uh, overtly political and to some extent philosophical or, or sort of rooted in new materialism or any of these kind of ideas. But Absolutely. So I'm not in any way saying the only framework that's relevant um, is anti-fascism. In a natural fact, you know, the, 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 I also kind of end up to echo a point you made earlier on saying that, um, that, you know, the summary of AI is essentially a form of extractivism and therefore that the inversion of that is, has an element of the commons involved. So, you know, I guess in the book, what I'm trying to do, because there has to be some kind of limit to the frame, is articulate reasonably as well as clearly as I can what I think are the uh, the the sort of core dynamics behind uh, that the, the emergence of AI has in common with the status quo, which are producing the overt harm. So what are the, what are these core dynamics, and what might their inversion be? Um, 
Um, so, for example, uh, yes, more horizontal forms of organization, more commons-based solutions, and so on and so forth. Now, I, I, I settled on anti-fascism for at least a couple of reasons, I think. Um, one is pretty obviously because of the urgent threat of fascism. Right? It's like uh, um, it is, again, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to merge this into the book is because it's uh, it's still, I think, a neglected um, threat in terms of its sort of political relevance. People are not still, amazingly, you know, after several years of overt fascists taking power, you know, still don't quite realise the historical moment that we're in. But the point, I wasn't trying to say, oh my, well, I wasn't only trying to say, oh my God, imagine what happens when the fascists get hold of the AI. Obviously, that's a very bad thing, but that's also like too late. Uh, that's too late. What I'm interested in is, and this is why I, I you know, settled on fascism, because so many of the core qualities that I really saw when I looked into the actual concrete operations of this particular algorithmic technology, the essentializing of identity, you know, the transformative capacity it has, which involves different as a transformative violence in some way, its creation of states of exception. That was a particular sort of uh, tr trigger for me. And, and, and what I more broadly call is necropolitics, which is, is identification of, you know, elements of, groups or populations which are essentially disposable, you know, these seem to me capacities that can very easily lend themselves to the capacities that resonate entirely a, a, you know, fa a fascist political So, So I wanted to say, whatever we do with AI, you know, these, these are extremely dangerous uh, political tendencies, uh, proto-political tendencies, you know, capacities. And given that we have the actual political tendencies emerging, what I want is to for there not to be a, a technology that leads to more fascism than we already have, than is already coming. Um, what what I think about the state form in that sense is that, um, you know, I think the mistake, you kind of hinted at it, you know, things that we all thought had gone away, and they never did. You know, the, the, you know the, the, the way in which fascism went away was about as real as the uh, what do they call it? The uh, you know the sort of defascizing process they had in Germany. After that, it was like, well, well, you're no longer a fascist. Let's make you a judge. You know, it's it's like <laughs> yeah, the denazification. Denazification. Thanks very much. Temporarily gone out of my head. You know, it's <laughs> that. And, and to some extent, this is for all of us, right? You know, growing up in the society, we all have to question our own. Uh, I mean, obviously, me as a what you know, as a, as a well-educated white male, perhaps in my own particular ways, because of all the privileges I've inherited, I've, I've accrued. But you know, a lot, everybody, I think, has to really question the potential for fascistic tendencies inside of us. And what, where AI comes to play a part in that, is any mechanism of of aggregation, or any mechanism of of, of scaling, or, or or I'd say escalation, is its ability to amplify and condense those tendencies in in ways that we would really really don't, don't want to happen so that um and and actually the state forms that we currently have i, I don't think again stand separately you know they are the instantiation of 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 a history that has kept those ideas alive actually you know has kept the idea of um, hierarchy and superiority and well patriarchy and colonialism i mean these things lived on through the state forms that we currently have so in the same way that I'm going to do not dodge the question, but I'm going to say, well, there could be AI, but I don't know what it's going to, it's going to look like. I mean, that, that, there's got to be forms of collective human organization. They have to have some way of um, coordinating at scale. But I, I don't think it looks like the states that we currently have. And luckily, we have at least a couple of examples in the world, really existing world and in history, of course, many examples. Right. But we have the autonomous administration of northeast Syria, which is usually known as Rojava. Or we have the Zapatistas. We have people who are, but we, we have what's going on in um, Myanmar at the moment. You know, we have people who are actively, because of their own intensely, um, because circumstances offers offers no alternative, you know, are, are actively experimenting with other ways to organize human collectivity. And I think we, you know, that's the that's the kind of imagination that we need to realize that, you know, we we not only imagining something beyond the technology that we currently have, but imagining the possibility for a better world. Will AI ever be part of that? Well, you know, to be honest, not the kind of AI that we've got. But you know, I, I as a, my disclaimer at the beginning, and I'm a bit of a nerd. I don't. I'm not trying to say, you know, we should take all circuit boards out, and burn them. I think 
there may well be applications of technology that support, you know, more commons-based caring society, you know, in which human well-being and mutual aid are our core values. But they're going to look very, very different. And even there, we've got an example, right? The Lucas Plan from the 1970s, which I've been there. They, there was people who worked in workers in, a, in an arms company. Now, they took their skills and they generated early ideas for things like solar panels and hybrid electric vehicles, you know, whereas their day job, I mean, making fighter jets and tanks, you know. So if we're going to imagine technology, and I, I, my personal interest at the moment is in old school cybernetics of the kind of Stafford Beer kind. You know what, what what the potentials they might offer but it's like we almost can't imagine it now we have to just start doing it and find out on the way you know we have to reconstruct our technologies in parallel with reconstructing our ways of organizing together in order to build a different society in the shell of this one and then we may find out whether there's something that we would call ai